0: So how did this book come into being?
1: Well, I began writing it in the winter and early spring of 2021, 2021, especially in New York. We were still pandemicking a bit. So life was still really not normal. And my kids were still in hybrid school, in and out of school. So I was starting this book. I did have a deadline. My publisher did want a second book. So I knew it was coming at some point in the next year. But I started writing without really a full picture or even a game plan or a roadmap of where I thought this book was going to go. With the first book, my first book, Good Apple, I had that book mapped out from start to finish before I really ever even started writing it. This one, I just started writing. So I began writing a little bit. I always love to write some stories, a little bit about my childhood, things that are in my past. There were some stories that I didn't get to tell in the first book that I knew I wanted to tell in this one. And then, and I'm sure we will get into this maybe at some point, but our apartment story really began to unfold. And that was what the momentum and the engine that kind of drove this book so we were living in an apartment that we sold and we started to attempt to buy a larger apartment in our same building in new york city from an elderly neighbor and it was a a hoarding situation and we entered into this relationship with our neighbor and that is really the thread that goes through this book there's several chapters where we follow that roller coaster and it was an emotional and logistical roller coaster of trying to buy this new apartment So when that began going, when we began to have these longer conversations with Lois, uh, who was the owner of the apartment, that really started to propel the book forward. And then I could see where this was going. And I felt like, yes, it is a very New York story. It's a real estate story about Manhattan, which I know does not appeal or even resonate with everybody. But it was a human story, too. It was a story about connection, about friendship, about the community of our neighborhood and our building. And that really was what made the book take off. And that was when my writing really started. I knew where the book was going at that point.
0: I love the way that you wove that story throughout, though. And I would love to meet Lois. <laughs> well, she sounds fascinating.
1: For any readers out there, she is. You are correct. And for any readers out there who are interested, the audiobook, I read the audiobook, And at the end of the audiobook, we have a little bit of bonus content. I had Lois come into the studio with me, and we sat down and had a little conversation. And I have kept in touch with her, I check in with her every once in a while, but we had not seen each other since we had bought the apartment. And so she came in to the studio, and we were able to talk a little bit. Now that the dust is settled, and both she has moved on and we have moved on, and we got to talk a little bit about the apartment and what it was like for her to sell it and and give that up. So if people have read the book and they are interested in hearing her in her own voice and tell a little bit about her life in New York and and the relationship that we had in the apartment, that is one way they can get more Lois in their life. Do
0: you really think her attorney was trying to keep you from buying the apartment? Or what was his
1: deal? We don't know. It is still a mystery. In the best possible scenario, when I appeal to my better angels... I really hope that he was just trying to get the most money for his client. I hope that that's the case. The way he went about doing it, and again, this is in the book, we had a lot of back and forth with her attorney over the price of the apartment, and he was telling us that she was directing him to raise the price and do these things. And she was saying the opposite, that she was not telling him that. So it was a very confusing, very contentious time where we thought we might lose the apartment, and this lawyer was really obstructing the sale. I hope that. There was deep down a beneficial reason, you know, a reason in his heart that he was trying to get her recognizing that she was older and might not have been understanding the value of the apartment, which maybe he was just trying to get her more money. But I don't know. It was a very strange situation. And he is not really in the picture anymore. I did check in with Lois. Yes. He doesn't need to be. I thought maybe he was a
0: long lost relative and he was somehow in the will or something and was trying to. That would
1: have made an even better book. But No. (laughs)
0: Unfortunately, he was just cantankerous. He
1: was. Yes,
0: he was. Why was it so important for you to stay in that same building, Mm -hmm. in that same part of Manhattan that you and Michael have lived in for how long?
1: We bought the apartment in 2008. So we had lived there for about 14 years. And we had had all three of our kids in this two-bedroom apartment. Our third child slept in a closet. If anybody has read my first book, I talk a lot about that, how Sam, our youngest, slept in the master closet. That is a great question. And that really is the heart of the book, is this building. I even dedicate the book to my neighbors. neighbors. Yes, to my neighbors. So we lived in this building for a long time. When we moved in It wasn't that we had spied the building years before and had always dreamed of living in this building. We kind of fell into this apartment that we bought shortly after we got married. But when you live in New York and you all live on top of each other and you're sharing an elevator and you're sharing laundry rooms and you see people in and out of the lobby, I think there is a sense of community and just watching out for each other, watching people's lives You know, we watched people be wheeled to the hospital. We've watched people bring new babies home. There's an intimacy with people's lives when you are living in such close quarters that I think you don't get anywhere else. And we had really fallen in love with so many of our neighbors and the staff in our building, who again are like surrogate parents and aunts and uncles to our children. So we just had really fallen in love with a lot of the people in our building it's right on central park so it's very close to the park which in new york city is such a gift to have that green space across the street but what really made us and i want to say solidified our desire to live in the building but what it really was was made us absolutely insane and crazy to want to stay in the building and made us a little bit rabid about it was during the pandemic we were all inside and during lockdown but we never felt lonely because in New York, again, we would share the elevator. So if we the elevator doors opened and we'd see two elderly neighbors going downstairs, we'd say, no, no, you go ahead and we'll take the next one because you didn't want to get in the elevator with people who were older or maybe compromised in some way. We took dinner to our elderly neighbors who couldn't shop. We did grocery shopping for each other. We checked on people. And having that sense of attachment and during a time when so many people were so cut off from their communities, just really made us, again, fall in love with our neighbors even more. And then I write about this in the book that during the pandemic, our building, which is on Central Park West and is pretty tall, it's about 22 floors, 22 stories, had put in a rooftop. The roof was obviously already there, but it wasn't set up and built up in a way that we could have a roof deck. And that was something that our co-op board decided to do during the pandemic. They landscaped it beautifully. They put chairs and tables up there and lights that come on automatically when the sun goes down. There's Wi-Fi up there. It's amazing. And it opened Right around the time New York City was sort of opening up, too. So suddenly, all of us kind of crawled out of our dark holes of our apartments and went up onto the roof where you could see the park. You could see the river. You could watch the sunset. You could see all the way to the east side and see the Guggenheim Museum and all of these wonderful sights. And then you look around, and there's your neighbors all having dinner. It looked like the most glamorous restaurant in all of Manhattan. Everybody's passing by tables saying, what do you have for dinner? Oh, what did you guys bring up for dinner? And people bring up wine bottles and drinks. And it just felt like we were all in this together. It felt so warm and so just communal and beautiful. And that really sealed the deal for us that we did not want to (laughs) leave. So we thought... How can we stay in this building? And that's when this apartment kind of fell in our laps a little bit.
0: And that was such a blessing, too, because there was nothing else there that, you know, even
1: was affordable around the area. You are correct. New York City is expensive. We all know that. And so, yes, the amount of money. And I will say we gave her a very, very fair price. We, we worked really hard to make sure it was a good deal for us. It left us enough money to renovate it, which it really needed. And also that it was a good deal for Lois, that we were giving her a really fair price while also taking the apartment off her hands in the state that she wouldn't have to bother with it. She wouldn't have to empty it out herself. We are closing down on our renovation. We're getting to the end of our renovation at this point. And even with the amount of money that we have had to spend, and it's been a lot to redo the plumbing and electrical. It was in, the apartment was in really bad shape. Even at the end of the day, I still think we will probably spend less money than we would have had to spend for anything else remotely that size in our neighborhood where our kids were still close to their schools. And that is not the case for a lot of people. So often people have to move far away, move to a different neighborhood, move out of town to afford what they want. And so we just feel incredibly lucky and so, so grateful that we were able to stay. It's a miracle. It's a miracle and a gift.
0: Well, the way that you describe your building is the way that I try to describe Southern hospitality. And I never think about Manhattan in Southern hospitality, but it sounds like that's sort of the way it is.
1: Well, you're talking to a Southerner who, of course, exactly. looks at everything through my Southern glasses and look at all my neighbors. Listen, we have had times where I would take dinner to someone and they'd say, oh, what, what What is this? What are you doing? I I didn't I didn't ask you to bring me. Oh okay. Food smooths the way, but usually I feel like we end up you know having a lovely exchange, or we end up becoming friends with people. But not everybody in New York is like that. You know, you're talking to someone for whom this is important, and that kind of hospitality is important. Not everybody is like that, but I do think that people sometimes underestimate the sense of community that you can find in these Manhattan buildings, especially buildings that are older that have been around a long time. Our building was built in 1920. Some of the people that live in our building were born there, grew up there. Maybe their parents passed away and they inherited the apartment. They're still there. We have a great mix of young families, newlyweds, some single people, elderly people. And so that, I think, is really makes our building special. There's a lot of buildings in New York where it's a lot of young professionals who are coming and going and moving in and out or people who come from other countries and they spend part of the year in different places. We just happen to have a really special building where everyone spends the majority of their time there and it's just a nice friendly place. But I do think New York, because you are so close in proximity to people, you either have to learn how to live with your neighbors with grace and with patience, or you don't. And if you do, it can be a wonderful place to live. And if you don't, it can be very lonely. But I think that we just have been really lucky that we have always been kind of surrounded by people for whom living in this type of close quarters and sharing elevators and sharing buses or sharing the sidewalk even is something that people enjoy and genuinely love to be around other people.
0: That's great. I mean, that just sounds like you're living here, you know. (laughs) In a
1: way, yes, in a way. It can be a small town. You know, New York is really lots of little small towns. I feel like every neighborhood almost feels like its own little small town. So I cannot tell you how many times I've been walking down the street and just run into someone that is from the south or from Memphis or is in town visiting or you really do. You see the same people over and over again. Your school commutes are the same. And of course, you're not in a car. You're on the street on your feet or you're on the bus. So you do run into people a lot more. So I do think New York City neighborhoods can feel very much like a southern small town to me.
0: That's great. It must make you feel at home then. It does. And it probably has since you moved there.
1: Yes. Well, it feels like home, too, because I've lived there. This is the crazy thought. I have lived in New York now longer than I lived in Memphis. I've crossed over that invisible line of having lived in New York longer than I lived in Memphis, which is a really strange thought to me to have lived somewhere else longer than you lived in your childhood city. But that's where we are.
0: Well, now, the name of the book is about your dad's couch Did he know it was an ugly couch or did he think it was
1: really cool? He thought it was really cool. He always really resented that his family members thought it was ugly. I say in the book that he would tell my sister and me when we were younger, one of these days, you girls are going to fight over this couch. And we would look at him and just say, oh, dad, you're (laughs) crazy. Like, whatever. No way. And we didn't fight over it. To be fair, my sister didn't want it. So I got it full stop. But I fell in love with that couch. And when I was little, I really thought it was just the biggest eyesore that could have ever entered our apartment. And we all rejected it for a long time. It lived in a lake house. It lived in my grandmother's room. And then it slowly made its way back into my life and into our New York City apartment. But, but no, my dad loved it. You know, he bought it at Samuel's Furniture, which is a Memphis company. They were family friends of my, my grandparents. And he picked out that fabric, I think, and he was very deliberate about it. It was a orange and brown plaid velour it was very 70s even though he bought it in 1968 so he loved it I say to people and I tell this story too in the book when they would come to visit me in New York when we still had the couch and at this point my dad is almost 80 years old and my husband and I would say oh please you guys take our bed and we'll sleep on the floor with the kids or in a pallet And my mom would say, no, 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 we're fine. Don't worry about us. We don't need to take your bed. She would sleep in the bottom bunk, the full-size bottom bunk with one of my children. And my dad would sleep on the couch because it was his couch. It was like he was being reunited with a an old buddy. He would be so excited. He'd say, are you crazy? This is the best bed in the house. I'm sleeping on my couch. So he loved it. Well, our producer and I were talking, each one of us had our own ugly couches,
0: but they had that same fabric, but ours wasn't velour. Mine was this tweedy, uncomfortable, that, and my couch was never comfortable, yep. so I'm glad yours was.
1: Well, the couch on the cover of the book is tweedy, and let me tell you a little background about the cover. I asked the cover designers, I said, could we put a picture of the real couch on yeah. the cover? And I sent them a few shots of the real couch. I could take a picture. Could we use the real couch? And I was told very gently that my couch was just a smidge too pretty to be the ugly couch. And I'm telling you, it was because of the velour. The softness of the fabric was what made the couch. That was its redeeming quality. Because you're right. I feel like we've all had some version of that couch that's on the cover that has that scratchy feel to it. And my ugly couch, for all its ugliness, did have a very soft feel. So that was what made it sort of a redeeming piece of furniture in our lives.
0: But how does your mom feel about it being an ugly couch? Would she keep it in the house
1: when they got married or? She did not. She did not. I think it lived in their condo maybe when they first got married. But my first memories of the couch were it was in my grandparents' lake house, which was in on a tiny little lake, Mohawk, in in Mississippi. So, no, it was kicked out of the house fairly early, I believe, in their marriage. And my mother got her own English country style that she preferred in their in their house, yeah.
0: And you talked about Ruth Reichel. I just finished her book "Save Me the Plums" about her time at Gourmet. It was wonderful, so I'm glad that you did mention her. What made you realize it was time for you to leave
1: Vogue? So, yes, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about my time working at Vogue. I was a magazine writer for about 20 years before I really started writing books, and I did work at Vogue for not that long, about two years, maybe a little bit less, and I loved it. So I am glad I worked there. I'm glad I left. But while I was there, it was a really wonderful place to work in a lot of ways. I learned a lot. The wonderful thing about Vogue is that the writing is just really excellent. There's a lot more long-form writing in Vogue. Not everything is little product shopping captions, which really took over in magazines around the time that I was working at them. But the reason I left the story that I tell is I was in a meeting, and it was a meeting for the age issue, which is a yearly issue that Vogue puts out, and what they do is they have different decades of women, a woman in her 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I think they went up to the 70s at that point. And they have a real person, a real woman that they sort of dress and talk about the different style choices or makeup or hair choices you might make at that decade in your life. And so we had to cast real women to be the models in these stories. And it's, of course, always harder for Vogue to cast those older ages. You know, you can find the 20-year-olds or a dime a dozen, but it was harder to find a beautiful, thin accomplished all these things that Vogue wanted when you got up into 60s and 70s. And I remember because they had very strict parameters. And so I remember being in the meeting and someone brought up a woman that they were pitching as someone in her older years, middle to middle to later age years. And they said, well, she's this and this. She's the head of a company. She's done this, this, and this. And they said, she's Southern, but she's polished, as if to say, She's Southern, but she didn't just walk out of the outhouse barefoot, you know, with a twig in her mouth, which is, of course, I felt like what everyone in the in the room had in their minds as a stereotype of what a Southerner was. And it was so funny to me because on the one hand, there were so many editors at at Vogue who were Southern. There were lots of us there who grew up in the South who were working there. But in that moment, that's what made me realize, oh, all these other people who are Southern, they have drunk the Kool-Aid. They're going right along with this idea that Southerners are less educated, less polished, less impressive. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to ever get to a point where I go along with that line of thinking or I let my childhood, my hometown, my people that I love so much feel cheapened in any way by the people that I'm working with or by an institution that I'm propping up with my talents. So that was kind of a point where I just thought, maybe this is just not the place for me anymore. But I do look back on that time with fondness. I enjoyed working there. But yes, I think that Vogue is a place that really people who work there tend to fit the mold of what Vogue wants them to be. And I just thought there are too many loose strings hanging out the side of me to fit that mold. So I did. I left a few months after that.
0: The people that were Southern, were they trying to hide
1: that they were Southern? Had they changed their accents? I don't think so. No, Julia Reed was a contributor at Vogue. I mean, who's a wonderful writer and a very proud Southerner. And she wasn't on staff. She was a contributor. So she wasn't in the office every day. But no, I don't think that maybe they had figured out something that I wasn't mature enough to figure out yet. Maybe there was a way where they had bifurcated their life and were comfortable with having this duality about them. And I was young. I was 23. Maybe I wasn't 24. Maybe I wasn't quite mature enough to figure out how to do it. But I think that there's certainly a way to be a proud Southerner and a proud New Yorker and to have your culture be important to you and also appreciate and value the culture of your workplace that might be at odds with each other at times. I certainly think that's possible. I just think that there were certain things that Vogue required of you that I just was not willing to do. And let's be honest, I wasn't great at them. I mean, there were certain ways of dressing, certain brands they wanted you to buy, certain ways they wanted you to appear that I was terrible at. I was not a great Vogue employee anyway. So I learned what I could. I took the relationships that I could. I valued the things that I learned and the editors that I worked for with, and I took it and I left.
0: Well, I really like the way you said, you know, some of the girls were spending so much money on all the clothing. You were just going to knockoff shops yes. and trying to fit in, yes. you know. Yes. So much smarter, though, well, in the long run.
1: There was no going into debt at Prada for me. I, that was not going to be an option. So there was no safety net of my parents pulling me out of debt if I spent too much money on designer clothes. So I didn't really have much of a choice. But Good for you. <laughs> when you talk about apologies and making a pact
0: with your girlfriends about the chin hair. I've already made a pact with my granddaughters, Mm -hmm. and they are in charge of that for me. But why are there so many things that we feel like that we're supposed to take care of like that and apologize for?
1: Well, I'm going to tell you, I don't apologize for it. I spend a lot of time with tweezers. I said, if I <laughs> if I had to go to a desert island, people always ask, what is your desert island products or the things that you would take to a desert island? Tweezers would be at the top of my list. I spend a lot of quality time with my tweezers. I don't think there's a friend in my life who can actually help me out when it gets to that point. I joke that we're going to need a lawnmower, not tweezers, <laughs> to deal with the chin hair when I get to be older. You know, I I don't know why we apologize for it. I don't really apologize for it. I guess... We've just decided that there are certain things as we age that become kind of a cliche and we all sort of talk about them and we just kind of lament that they are what they are. And that's what I like to bring out in the open, I think, when I write. I want to be able to bring those things out in the open and laugh at them because we're all dealing with the same thing. When I do talk about these things, and this isn't a chapter where I talk about wetting my pants when I run. Sorry mom, but I do talk about just that inability to to not wet your pants when you jump on a trampoline or jump rope or go for a run sometimes. We're all dealing with it. When I say these things out loud, it's a chorus of, "Oh my gosh, me too." And so when I write, that's what I want to write about. I always want to bring those things out into the light and discuss them because it doesn't mean, I think you should pluck your chin hairs if you want to. I think you should let them grow if you want to. Pee your pants if you want to. Get surgery to try to fix that if you want to. (laughs) Do whatever makes you feel good. But let's just be honest that it's all happening to everybody.
0: Now, I was going to ask you a favor. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to my (laughs) daughter-in-law about mother-in-laws? Oh, my gosh. And that was such a funny chapter, but it was so true You know, and especially the part about letting her do what she wants with your children, Mm -hmm. because sometimes my daughter-in-law doesn't necessarily agree with me (laughs) about that. And I've never had a problem with the food thing, but I just
1: know what she doesn't want me to do. So I don't do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I can call her when we're done here, if you would (laughs) like for me to. I'm happy to make house calls. Well, let me just say, and again, I am writing this as someone who learned the hard way. I was not a great daughter-in-law for several years. So it's not to say that I have it all figured out or my mother-in-law would say I'm the model daughter-in-law. I wasn't. I write this having been married for 18 years, having been a part of his family for 20-something years. So it took me a long time to learn these lessons. I'm still learning them. I'm still not always great at it. It's much easier to give advice in a top 10 list in a book than it is to actually live it out. So give your daughter-in-law a little bit of grace. She's learning too. My real takeaway that I hope people remember from that chapter is mother-in-laws are full people who have lived a whole life. And so everything that they are bringing to their relationship with you is informed by a long marriage, long friendships, suffering heartache difficulties with their own kids and so we bring all of that to our relationships so it's so easy as a daughter-in-law to look at that relationship as it's just about me and you or everything you're doing is just about me and it's not it is being informed by a whole chorus of other experiences in that woman's life who is older and has lived a lot longer and suffered a lot more than you have so be patient and be gracious and it took me a long time to learn that So I hope that maybe if there are newlyweds out there or young married people out there that they can read these words and maybe learn the lessons that I learned a little bit earlier. But yes, I am very pro-letting mothers, and this applies to your own mother. I mean, this applies to my mom. Let them feed the children ice cream for breakfast. Let them let the kids watch TV constantly. Within reason, if they are not doing something that is unsafe Just let them do what they want to do. It is not worth the conflict to start to try to dictate what they can give them for Christmas. So that's my advice. Do you think some of that is tempered by
0: losing your child in in
1: New York? Don't stop the sentence just there. It makes it sound much worse than it is. He's recovered. I still have him. But yes, I lost my child in Times Square. So that story. And let me tell you, that's not the only time I've lost this child. And I've lost the youngest one temporarily, too. So New York City is a big place. It's very crowded. I did lose my middle kid, who is now almost 11. But when he was about six... We lost him in Times Square on Christmas Eve, which was very traumatic. He still talks about it, but we went into a store. He did not notice that we had gone in through the revolving doors into the Walgreens, and he kept walking, and we did not notice that he was not with us for a little while. So then I had to walk back outside into Times Square and sort of find him. We did find him. Everything was fine. But, you know, that also, I want to say to young mothers and people who are nervous and anxious about their children's safety, I've lost my child in Times Square. I've lost the same child. And this is the situation that every New York parent fears. We had a situation where dad got on the subway child did not get on the subway with him. Subway pulls out of the station. My husband looks out the window and sees our 10-year-old standing on the subway platform, and he's taking off in the subway. And again, everything was fine. That is what I want to say almost always, everything is fine. Kids are pretty resilient. If you have trained your children what to do in these situations, even the ones who seem completely flighty and airheady will almost always do what the, you've told them to do. That child was perfectly safe. We recovered him. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He stayed where he was lost until we found him. And he is honestly not my most responsible child. He is the child who probably would take off and, and go go see a movie on his own or something like that. and still. in those situations, he did great. He did exactly what we taught him to do. And so I just think that there's so much fear, and it's understandable. There are a lot of things going on in the world. But I think if I can say anything to new mothers and people, it's that you teach your kids how to handle these situations, and they really are listening to you. And if you get in one of these situations chances are they're going to be okay. And you're going to be okay. And so I have lived through a couple of scary things with my kids and everyone's been fine. And so I hope that maybe people can read that story and get a laugh. It's a great, funny story. And also remember that you can teach your children to do the right thing in in difficult situations. And a lot of times they rise to the occasion.
0: Absolutely. And you had your own trauma as a child. (laughs) Your dad ran over you
1: with the yes, station wagon. Yes, when I was about my son's age, the son, the age that he was left on the subway tracks, my dad accidentally, it was an accident, backed over a boat hitch that I was trying to help him guide the station wagon back to the boat hitch and accidentally hit the gas instead of the brake. And... Ran over me, but not with the tires. It was very close, but he missed my head by about six inches, thankfully. The angels were looking out for me that afternoon, but the car did sort of roll over my body. It was really scary. But that is one of those stories in the book where it's a gift as a writer to get to look back at those things and evaluate them as an adult. And at the time, I had told myself a story about what happened that day. And looking back, it wasn't really the same story. I looked back on it as a parent now, and I was able to much more clearly and more sympathetically understand what my dad was probably going through that day and how scary and and heartbreaking and sort of guilty he must have felt. And maybe that's why he reacted and why this sort of mythology around the story took over as I grew up in our family. But that's the gift of being a writer, is being able to look back on those times and reevaluate them and think about them in a different way.
0: Well, you make them funny too. That <laughs> helps. That really helps. You a need lot. a little
1: humor for the scary <laughs> yeah, parts.
0: Absolutely. But then there was a serious part. You use Tangled and Rapunzel and her parents, how they send lanterns into the sky each year as remembering her, longing for her, and looking for her. And you compare that to how God is looking for us. Can you explain that just a little bit more?
1: I can. Well, first, I'm going to give credit to the place where I first heard this. There is a podcast called The Mocking Cast, which is the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. It's a, a group of Episcopal priests who get together and talk about where they see grace and God working in modern culture. And I heard one of the hosts of that podcast say this. And Tangled has always been my favorite Disney movie. Even when Frozen came out and became the juggernaut that it was, I always had a soft spot in my heart for Tangled. I love Tangled. I still do. So when he started talking about this, it just stuck with me and I've never forgotten it. But the sense that this movie you think is really about – of Rapunzel escaping Mother Gothel, and you think it's about the love story between Rapunzel and Flynn Rider, but what the host of the Mockingcast was saying is, The real story for him in watching that movie is how her parents never gave up looking for her, that she was not out looking for her parents. She didn't even know to look for her parents, but they were looking for her and they were sending out these lanterns. And I do think that yes, this is where I I bring my faith a little bit into the book, which I try to do where it fits and where it makes sense. But How so often we are trying so hard to reach a goal or find God or figure out the purpose for something or the reason that something is happening the way it is. And it's such a comfort to me to remember that we don't have to go searching for him, that he came to earth searching for us, that he's sending out the lanterns. He was always looking for us, even when we are off on a completely different path or putting ourselves in danger or making bad decisions, that he is the one who is looking for us. And I think that is a comforting thought to me as a human being. But I also think, I hope it's comforting for my kids to know that I'm always going to be looking for them, that they are going to make bad decisions, that they are going to go down the wrong path they are forget to go through the revolving door at Walgreens in Times Square and that they don't have to find me. I will find them. I will not stop looking for them. So that was just a really beautiful illustration, I thought.
0: I also got tickled when you're talking about Bandit. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking. My terrible dog. Maybe he wanted to be named Batman, and he's had it against you ever
1: since because you renamed him to Bandit. Maybe so. I don't know. I think Bandit's a pretty good name. Who wants to have to live up to being a superhero? We did rename this puppy. He was named Batman because he had kind of that black mask looking markings on his face. And we did. We renamed him Bandit. He was a terrible, terrible dog. We got the short straw in the bunch with that dog. He was vicious and a little bit nuts and I write in the book he bit me several times including on my 16th birthday and so I used to be a huge dog lover. I used to imagine a a life where I lived on a farm and just took in stray dogs and cats and everybody all the time and now I live in a Manhattan apartment with no animals whatsoever but Bandit probably had something to do with that.
0: Did you keep the driver's license? I still have it.
1: I'm in Memphis. I should go dig it up in my closet somewhere in my childhood bedroom and hold on to it. Yes, I still have it. Because
0: he actually bit your lip and pulled it in plastic surgery followed yes. that would that would have been traumatic it was she just
1: powered through it well again that's the beauty of hindsight of writing this story many many years later it was a little traumatic the day of but i did insist it was my 16th birthday i was on my way to the dmv to take my driver's license test and get my driver's license And I bent down to kiss my sleeping, insane, crazy dog. And I startled him. And he launched and just kind of bit my lip. And so we did. We went to the ER. A plastic surgeon stitched me up. And my mom said, well, we'll just do your driver's test another day. And I said, oh, no, we won't. We're going to the DMV right now. So we went. And I finished my driver's test. And I passed. And I'm getting ready to take my picture. And the very kind woman behind the camera said, oh, sweetie. She's looking at my face. It's bandaged up. She said, sweetie, I can just give you a temporary license and you can come back and take your picture later. And I said, no, ma'am, you're going to take my picture right now. I want that license in my hands. And I did that. And I have a very funny, very bizarre looking driver's license to show for it. So, yep, I was very determined that day.
0: I could tell you were because it was <laughs> like, I'm not stopping. I am going to do this.
1: May we all have the determination of a 16-year-old who wants her driver's license really bad.
0: I also liked the way that you came up with the phrase Everyone looked like cosplay of the Golden Girls when you're talking about your sixth grade co-ed dance.
1: Now that there's Instagram and I can see all of my friends who have middle school and high school daughters and sons and I see everybody's dance pictures. I mean, it's prom time right now and spring fling time and I can see everybody's pictures. And these girls, they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. These beautiful, beautiful children. And they are in dresses that are so mature and they look I mean sometimes a little too mature but let's be honest but you know gorgeous dresses these cute strapless dresses and little slits and fringe and they're black and gold and hot pink and my friends and I when we were going to sixth seventh and eighth grade dances were wearing ankle length velvet drop waist dresses with a sash a ribbon sash and a lace collar and we were wearing Mary Janes. The cool dresses did not exist. We were dressed like prairie girls. We were dressed (laughs) like we were on the Oregon Trail. And so I, I do, I laugh so hard that I look back at these pictures of us, and we do all look like we are trying to dress as if we're heading to the retirement home or something, or it's very, very cold outside. We've got turtlenecks on, and cardigans buttoned up to our necks, and costume jewelry that our moms gave us. But God bless. I mean, we we had fun. We didn't know any different. We didn't know there were strapless dresses to come. So we enjoyed those dances. I have always
0: so enjoyed my girls trips. And you talk about that. Why do you think that's so important to women to spend time with other women?
1: What's important is spending time without your children. That's what's really important. We need to sleep <laughs> and not be asked for any snacks. No, I'm only partially kidding. But it starts out that you have weddings to go to so often. You get out of college, and for their five years or 10 years or however long, you have weddings to go to, and you see your friends. You, you run into people, and you have these reunions at weddings, and it's wonderful. And eventually, that tapers off, and you don't see your friends as much. And then maybe you all have young children, and so life is so big busy and it's impossible to get away and it's really hard to have time for yourself. And then there, you, you hit a little bit of a lull. At least that's what happened with my good friends from childhood that I grew up with. We realized that we needed a break from our families and, and had time for ourselves and we needed to... Invest in those friendships a little bit. Nowadays, Marco Polo and Voxer and all these wonderful ways you can keep in touch are great. But there is nothing like being together in person and just having uninterrupted time like that. And I do think as we get a little bit older, there is a time where you've passed the wedding's and you're not yet to a point where your kids are out of the house entirely and you, you're retired maybe and you have more time to spend together. And so you have to make an effort. It takes an effort. Don't get me wrong. It is hard. When we are trying to plan these yearly girls trips, it's always difficult. We always have a lot of fits and starts. And, well, it's not really in the budget for us this year to pay for a plane ticket. OK, well, maybe we can go here and you can drive and I can fly. It's not easy. But I just think that those female friendships, for me anyway, have been even more important the older I've gotten. They were incredibly important when I was growing up. These were the friends that kept me grounded. These were the friends that talked me off a ledge before my physics exam. These are the friends that told me who I was when I was growing up and understood me in ways that my parents really couldn't. But even now, as our lives have gotten more complicated and we're all taking on so much more responsibility and we've got problems with our teenagers and we're caring for aging parents and all of these things, I think you need that support that is outside of your nuclear family, whether that's a spouse or even your friends that you see in your daily life. I think you need... That concentrated time with people who can pour into you and you have time to really sit and solve each other's problems and talk with each other and support each other. So it's really life-giving. I mean, those are friends. And listen, they're my Memphis friends. They're all, as we sit here in Memphis, those are my friends that I went to school with from preschool all the way through high school, really. They've been my friends for 40 years at this point.
0: Because I've got two friends like that, too. And we've been together for 60 years now, 65 years, actually. Because we started out when we were, before we even knew, because our parents had kids the same age as the siblings, and so you know you always go to the birthday parties together and all of that. So well,
1: they remind you how far you've come. Exactly. They remind you that you can change. They remind you who you were and who you are now. And that things won't always be the way that they are. And you've made it through X, Y, and Z during college. And now you're going to make it through this too. Because they've walked with you through other seasons of grief or other seasons of hardship. And so they remind you that life goes on and that they're going to be there. And so I think having that longevity is what gives you a little bit of perspective. And yes, it's wonderful that those friends also know my mom or they knew my dad. So when I'm upset about something, experiencing some sort of grief over losing my dad or when I'm upset with my mom or my sister. Or about something, they know them. So I don't have to go into the backstory. They know exactly what's happening because they grew up with them too. The other thing
0: I was going to ask you about is something that you called Vaseline Synagogue or (laughs) what was the other term that you used? Uh, Vasanova Sousaphone, Yeah, that's
1: it. That's it. Listeners are really going to wonder what we're we're getting to. Yeah. So how is Michael? Does he still have problems? So that's my husband. That Michael is my husband. And he went through a period of time where he had very dramatic fainting spells, which it's called vasovagal syncope. That is the actual medical term and it's really common if you know anybody who faints at the sight of blood or faints when they're getting blood drawn or maybe even just when they stand up too long singing in the choir they faint really easily it's a very very common condition that a lot of people have he happens to have something like that that came on in his 40s out of nowhere and his is extremely weird in the sense that it always happens when he's sitting down. So it, there's no trigger. There's no sight of blood. There's nothing that brings it on that he can avoid in life. And he has a really aggressive response to it because we realized after we've been through a few of these episodes that his heart stops for a long time when he faints like this. So we had, I you can read about it in the book. It's very dramatic. He is fine. He lives at the end. But there's several times where we think he is dead. But he is fine. He had a very experimental procedure about a year ago, last March of 2022. Only a few hospitals in the country even do it. And one of the hospitals that happens to is Mount Sinai in New York. So we were really lucky that that was the hospital he was at. But he had a a very new type of ablation that kind of took care of things. And he has not fainted since. So he he was not going to die from the fainting. The problem in New York is you fall into the street in front of a bus or you fall into the subway tracks when you faint. That's what we were worried about. So again, it was a very scary situation, and it was a very serious time in our lives. And yet, it's also very funny, as so many things are. It turned out to be a really funny thing because it was just a fainting disorder. It was a very mild fainting disorder, but it brought on this enormously complicated and terrifying episodes where we were finding him passed out in different places. But it was funny, too. Scary things are always a little bit funny.
0: Well, the one that you talked about when he fell and hit the desk yes. after he had already fallen once—I know, like a it dummy. Was like, yeah, bless his heart. I know,
1: I know. I do still worry about him. Even just this morning, he's back in New York with our kids, and I'm here in Memphis starting my book tour. And I called this morning, and he didn't pick up. And I called again, and he didn't pick up. And the first place my brain goes is, he's passed out. The children are going to find him. My 13-year-old's going to have to call 911. So I don't think whenever you've had any kind of scare like that with a loved one, I think you never fully get past that ability to go into panic mode very quickly. And I still do, even though it's been a while, and I really think he's okay, And I think this procedure really is going to help and saved his life. But you still panic. I still get nervous.
0: And especially with all the stress with the apartment going on (laughs) all at the same time. And three
1: children and a job. It is. It's very stressful.
0: So is the book
1: tour kind of a relief? It is. Well, listen, it is a relief and it is a delight because my first book came out January of 2021. So nothing was happening in person then. I did a great launch event with Novel here in Memphis at the time, but it was on Zoom. So I was sitting on my couch all alone by myself and I couldn't hear anybody. I could just see their faces. So to be able to actually just go, I'm doing a very small, limited little book tour, but even just to go places, to be able to visit books Booksellers, to be able to go to these independent bookstores and meet the booksellers in person, to be able to meet readers and hug and shake hands and have a good time. I'm just thrilled to be able to do things in person. I'm an extrovert. I wrote a book partially so I could go on a book tour and talk to people. So this is just a complete joy for me.
0: Well, once you get back to New York after the book tour, then
1: what's next? I'm going to sleep a lot. No, I don't know what's next. I would love to write another book. I do think we're going to take a little time off because we've got to move into this apartment. Spoiler alert, if you're reading the book, we do get the apartment and it has taken a lot of work to get it livable again. So we are finishing the renovation but it's not done yet. So I'm going to finish that. I'm going to move in. I'm going to enjoy our new home that we worked so hard to get to that place and I'm going to enjoy living in the apartment for a little while. But hopefully another book is in, in the works. I would love to keep writing. As I always say, I just want to sell enough books to keep writing books because it's what I really love to do. So,
0: Well, I want to keep reading them. I, now I've got to go <laughs> back you. and get the first one. Well, so we thank appreciate you, so you being here to talk with us about it today and good luck on the tour.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun.